Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning on this beautiful Saturday. Welcome to Talkback Gardening. We are broadcasting live from Mawson Lakes. The park run has been underway. People are out and about walking around, enjoying the beautiful fresh air and the lovely gardens surrounding it. Come down and say hello. We're on the corner of Main Street and Mawson Lakes Boulevard. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And this morning we say good morning to fun runners. <laughs> we sure do, and there are lots of them around. And it's not just here in Adelaide. It's all around Australia, isn't it? All around Australia. Every single ABC capital city is broadcasting right now from a park run. And you know what? Everybody that I've met from a park run has got such a great sense of community and holistic health. They've created social networks. They've created a healthy network. They are reconnecting with people that they may not have known before and with nature by doing it exactly what home gardeners do through their communities. Absolutely, yes. And whether you're a fun runner or whether you're a gardener, uh, make the most of today because I think tomorrow (laughs) here in Adelaide it's going to be pretty wet. And uh, we're in for a pretty wet week. And uh, we might just quickly take a look at citrus gall wasp and the effects of the rain on the the sprays that people are putting on uh, in this morning's program. But our main discussion is looking at people and plants, Australian plants, and wildlife, native wildlife. And it's the connection between the people and uh, the plants and the wildlife that we're going to talk about. We've uh, been very concerned, and some of the speakers we've had on Talkback Gardening have been concerned about the fact that we're removing our native vegetation. As a result of that, we're losing our wildlife. Well, this morning, we're going to put it back again. We're going to talk to Chris Hall. He's a foundation member of the Abrosa Bush Gardens, and he's also written a wonderful book called Wild Barossa. And we'll talk to Chris very, very shortly about uh, how you can actually put your Australian native plants back in your garden, in suburban gardens, and as a result you have a lovely wildlife garden, a a wildlife-friendly garden. Yes, wonderful. So if you've got a question around natives or how to attract certain animals uh, or wildlife to your garden with natives... Now is the time to call, one 891 and we would love to hear from you. And we've also got some, if you're down here and you want to ask a live question, you will get yourself an ABC Organic Gardener magazine as well. And we'll get back to your general talkback gardening calls around about half past nine this morning, but love to hear from you. If you're not here, I do have a couple of ABC Organic Gardener back issues to give away if you're listening at home as well. And of course, um, if you are in the garden, don't forget to listen to us via the ABC Listen app. You can certainly do that very, very easily. And the big news from us when it comes to roses, Adelaide being the rose capital of Australia, is that we are announcing the winners of the 2022 Talkback Gardening Spring Rose Photographic Competition. Weren't the entries amazing, John? I reckon, and there are some lovely photos of just roses that grow in people's gardens and they're so proud of them they've taken a photo of them and sent them in and some of them are going to get some lovely prizes you are indeed so if you've taken part in that competition listen up we will make the announcement a little bit later this morning but i think we need to welcome our very special guest john yes the brossa Bush Gardens are well known in uh, the Barossa Valley, uh, actually at Nuriutpa, and they were established some 20 years ago, and one of the foundation members is Chris Hall. Uh, Chris uh, is a very passionate uh, grower of Australian plants, and uh, also the wildlife that comes with the plants. So we're going to take a look at how we can actually connect people and plants and wildlife and we'll say good morning to you Chris Hall. Good morning John, good morning Deb, lovely to be here down from the beautiful Barossa, only 40 minutes away. Well, apart from establishing, in fact we'll go right back to where you started 20 years ago at least, uh, you had this idea of having a bush garden. What was the need for having a bush garden in the Barossa Valley? Yeah, well, I, I was must give credit to Prue Henchke. Prue was the chair of our group, our community group called the Catchment Group, the Barossa Catchment Group. And our strategic plan, item five, create a seed orchard. 
create a native seed orchard of local plants for the Barossa. When you say a seed orchard, do you mean you want the seeds that come from the plants after the flower? Yes, yeah, so we had to uh, um, put the plants in and then we would harvest the seeds. So our first plantings were in straight rows. You know, my father always said nature abhors a straight line, but, but the, and I was trying to get it planted in curves, but, but, but it, we had to go with the flow and we went but in straight you, lines. Why did you need the seeds though? Oh, so that we could have a source of the local plants because there was no local seed source. We were all very um, uh, cheesed off with having to buy plants from eastern states nurseries and put them into the Barossa and they became huge weeds like some of the she-oaks, the glaucas and Cunninghamiaes which became weeds and suckered and caused enormous problems and then attracted the wrong, wrong wildlife and pests and things like that. So there was that and there was also I think Tim Flannery was in the back of our mind we wanted to pay homage to the sense of place, pay homage to the local sense of place. And I just love that line. And I think that, so I'm choking up yeah. now, I think, um, I think that you know, just makes us feel proud of what is South Australian and what is Barossan. And um, getting over that cultural cringe, which we've had since settlement, white settlement, where we destroyed all our native vegetation, we cleared the land for, veg- for, for stock, for, for buildings, for development, and that it wasn't good enough. So if you wanted to feel good about yourself, you had to have um, plants from other lands. So, but hey, we're, we're South Australian. Why can't we be proud enough to have plants from our, feel good about ourselves by having plants from our own state? You're creating that awareness of the need for replacing Australian plants. But yes. the point I would yeah. like you to address is the fact that it's local plants. Why the focus? On, I mean, what's wrong with right. just getting a, a native that's come from sort yeah, of right. Renmark or over on Air Peninsula and plonk it yeah. in the middle of the Brossa Valley? Okay, um, an ecosystem is a community of living things which depend upon each other for their existence. We're all interconnected. So, you know, in this surreal world where we're, we're, we're troubled by the lingering chronic um, soggy La Nina event at the moment and, and other global problems, you know, at the local level we can still keep our ecosystems, we can still keep the world together, keep our own little, what we can control is our local ecosystems and by um, recognising that we depend upon other living things for our existence and they depend upon us, um, then I think that's what, something we can control in our lives and something good we can do in our own back garden. So if we bring that down to the local level, we can we can do some good uh, in many ways in our gardens. We're talking with Chris Hall, founder of uh, the Bush, or one of the foundation members of the Barossa Bush Gardens and uh, author of uh, Wildlife Barossa. And if you've got questions, very shortly, Deb, I wouldn't mind talking to Chris about how people can actually establish in their own gardens uh, um, the right kind of vegetation and so we end up with the right kind of wildlife but we'd also like some questions. We'd love some questions from you and if you're at home you can call in on 1300 222 891 if you're here grab yourself an ABC Organic Gardener magazine pop up to the microphone just as Ruth from Parrow Hills has done. Ruth have you done the park run this morning? I certainly did. Did you do well? Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Doing it is a, is a it good is, thing to do. Is, now, you've already got some fruit trees established. Yeah, I've got approximately about 20 fruit trees on my property. It's just a normal suburban um, um, block. And I was thinking of um, what plants I can grow, either natives or whatever, under my fruit trees to help with their pollination, etc. OK, well, there we are. I think that uh, it opens it uh, for Chris to be able to come in and say, if you've got... and I think that's a, a typical situation. People have got sort of their exotics, like their, their fruit trees, but they'd like to be able to bring in Australian plants. Uh, and and it's how do they do that? And, and can you put, say, native plants beneath a, a stone fruit tree and, and get the value of the Australian plant? I haven't done anything with fruit trees specifically, but there's lots being done in the Barossa with uh, vineyards, okay. uh, Danthonias, like wallaby grass, like now called Rhytotosperma, but wallaby grasses, putting the native grasses in underneath the vines because they don't rob the soil of moisture when the, in the summer months when the trees or the vines are using the most moisture. I'm thinking also, I'd be thinking of herbaceous understory like senecios and white, yellow and blue flowering plants that can attract the native bees. 
as well. Yep. So I'm thinking, you know, little ankle biters, cottage garden pretties, they're not going to rob your soil of huge moisture. Um, but certainly wallaby grass would be one I'd be looking at. But as I said, I haven't done anything with fruit trees myself. But that's okay. what I'm thinking. Some years ago, uh, when the fires went through uh, uh, the Barossa Valley and, and the, the areas all around you, uh, Andy Barr, one of the farmers up there, and he was concerned about fires. And so, uh, and he had a lovely orchard, and he was putting in myoporum, and he putting in, say, two or three myoporums around the tree uh, underneath the, uh, the canopy. And so, and, and it just sort of spreads mm -hmm. and, and doesn't have much of a flower compared with some of the ones you were talking about, but at least uh, you've got uh, uh, the canopy there mm -hmm. and, and it acts like a mulch. Mm -hmm. The advantage with the grasses, uh, as opposed to the myopurum, would be that you can mow the grasses in. That's what the vineyards do. They'll mow the mid-row in, uh, and that's contributing to soil carbon as well. I had one proud vineyard on last week. He said, oh, we've got 1.3% more soil carbon since mm. we've been mowing mm. in the wallaby grass. So you're, you're thinking of that whereas you can't mow your myoporums in. That's the only thing. Okay. Otherwise, I thought you were going on to fire resistance. Do you need to have fire resistance plants under it? Otherwise, you salt bush are fire resistant. Yep. Unbelievably, some of them are. Okay. Uh, but no, you're nodding your head no. <laughs> no. Okay. 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 And, and, and that's the advantage of having Chris here, having the specific knowledge and where I can be broad brush and mm. so give you a myoporum. Look at the palette that Chris has given you. Yeah. Mm. Well, Ruth, okay. good Thank luck. And no take it away and have a look and see how you go. Let us know. All right, we'll do. Thank, Thank you. you. Grab yourself yes. a magazine here. Be before I go on, um, th that example of, of, of using uh, uh, plants uh, for in vines in the viticultural people mm. and many 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 years ago they used to have roses uh, at the end the of, uh, of a vine the and the headland mm. basically to tell uh, you when you're going to get a fungus disease but we don't get fungus disease very, very much but the roses have gone but they've been replaced with what? Exactly John, um, <laughs> Berseria spinosa. Um, Pruhenchke, again, I, I pay homage to Pruhenchke. She started this 20 years ago. Now uh, the bush garden sells thousands of Christmas bush every year. Now that's not the New Zealand Christmas bush, which is Fajoa, I think. This is the South Australian Christmas bush, which is Berseria, Berseria spinosa. It's a tall, elegant shrub to about three metres, if you let it go. It's usually pruned down to about one or two. Um, and what it does... Um, it shows this ecological um, link, how we're all connected. Um, there's a dolly wasp. There's a, a native wasp, which is half as big as a bee, very tiny, and its host plant is the Christmas bush. And so that dolly wasp then flies out from the Christmas bush into the vineyard and kills off the light brown apple moth, oh, which great. is one of the main vineyard pests. So the savvy viticulturists up there in the Barossa, they know this, and they're planting... Christmas bush now at the end of their headlands and in buffers and screens uh, and Christmas bush is becoming a very well-known plant in the Barossa whereas 20 years ago before the bush gardens um, it wasn't and what happens is the Christmas bush um, the dolly wasp lays its egg in the larvae of the light brown apple moth, thereby killing off the future light brown apple moth. That's wonderful. So th bring in your Australian plant, it brings in a native insect and mm. then you reduce them out of agricultural chemicals you That's need. right. So with the viticulturists are going organic and uh, trying to use less and less um, sprays and so this is one way of um, nature helping out and becoming more... That's fantastic. Chris Hall is our special guest, author of Wild Barossa and practical native plant garden designer. Ian from Ingle Farm is here live with us now. You've got a, is it a native question you've got? It's a native question, yeah. Far away. Do I, I'm looking at my clistamons at the moment. Some flowered early and they're looking a bit ragged. Do I prune them after they lose their flowers or wait till the end of summer and do it in sort of autumn and spring? What do we do when they flowered early? I'm just looking at the calistamons in the Barossa at the moment over many sites and they're, they're popping their cotton socks. They're, there's a sort of falling... <laughs> is it falling over itself? Yeah, falling yeah. over. And, I think yeah. it's La Nina. I think it's La Nina. I think they've grown so Better fast. Better than COVID. Better than COVID. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, I think they'll grow out of it. Um, I haven't pruned any yet, but I've had to... Um, I've had to restake some uh, at several sites because they're, they're growing so fast with the beautiful growing conditions, but 
the uh, and the weight of the buds and the flowers is so heavy that new new branches are just falling onto the ground. Um, so I'm hoping they'll grow out of it as soon as La Nina passes and we get some decent hot weather again and the soil dries out. I think they're also, the soil's just so saturated, they, they're just not coping in some ways. I, th- I think it's that. All so, the books say that you're supposed to prune them after they've flowered, so if that happens in the middle of January, am I going to ruin the plant or do we wait until autumn? Um, I'd probably wait till autumn, but I don't know, what does John think? Oh, well, I mean, the general rule is you've exactly, as you said, Ian, uh, uh, the basic principle is once it's finished flowering, you give it a trim rather than a prune. But uh, what uh, has just been described, I think, uh, Chris, is, is a dilemma that all face many people have got. They've got their native plants there and uh, they have responded very much because they put their growth on during that winter and early spring period and there's this lush growth with it and it's going to be long and pendulous. What to do in that situation? And that may mm. also be of interest yeah. to Ian. Well, we, as I said, we've, I've been restaking plants, putting guards back on. Like, we took the guards off and yeah. they, the plants just went flop. They've just been horizontal. Yeah. Uh, and so we've actually restaked them. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, I think they'll grow out of it once we get some hot weather. I don't really want to uh, promote the northern suburbs, Deb, but the calistamons out here are the most beautiful things on the planet when they're full of red flowers. I think we underestimate the calistamons in Adelaide. I think they're beautiful. Promote away. Promote the northern (laughs) suburbs. We are all 100% for that. That's another reason to come here. No, good on you, Ian. And look, grab yourself a magazine, please. Thank you very much for asking that question. We've got um, Colette from Clearview. We'll speak to her in just a moment, but may I just say to you, Chris, congratulations to Chris and the many volunteers supported by the Barossa Council staff who've proceeded with the development of the Barossa Bush Gardens. I've seen it develop from a seed orchard to a place of well-being for all. There is much evidence of a developing ecosystem from fungi through to assorted fauna, a haven for all. Thank you also to the local community who've encouraged us with their involvement and support. That's from Trevor. Thank you so much. Chris Hall is here. We've got him. We've got his expertise. We'll come back to him in just a moment. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We have got Chris Hall, a practical native gardener, designer, founding member of the Barossa Bush Garden, author of Wild Barossa here with us at our outside broadcast here at Mawson Lakes. You can come down and join us. You can still get here in time to ask a gardening question or play the quiz live on the corner of Main Street. And... Uh, Mawson Lakes Boulevard. Let's get it out. Now, Mark has come all the way from Burnside. Lovely to see you, Mark. And what's your native question for Chris Hall? Box hedges are very popular in sort of semi-formal gardens. Is there a native alternative that would stand being pruned, that would flower and attract uh, native birds into our gardens instead of having these exotic box uh, hedges? A lovely question. I would like to see a lot of uh, uh, those little uh, bushes, those oriental bushes disappear. But uh, Chris, it's over to you. Uh, yeah, good question. Because uh, Adelaide has have lovely formal gardens with box hedges and, and so forth. Um, I've been using Eremophilus a lot, and we in the Barossa we're using Eremophilus a lot. So Eremophilus, for those who don't know, common name emu bush, but no one says that. They say Eremophila. Uh, they hedge beautifully. They're shrubs from ground covers up to there's some big nonaflora is about three metres, but mostly they're a shrub to one metre or so, one to two metres, and they will hedge. Um, we're using uh, glabras and glabra carnosas um, mainly for hedging. Maculatas probably would hedge quite nicely or are hedging quite nicely but um, red flowering aeromophilus uh, occurred from here northwards from Adelaide northwards out to the Kimberleys and out to Mount Isa and right through Alice Springs and the arid lands. When would you cut back your aeromophilus because um, if you cut them back at the wrong time you, you remove well, the flowers. Well again after flowering I think yeah, yeah, sort flowering. Of, uh, not in summer because they're starting to flower now so um, could I mention yep. uh, my little favourite? It's yes. a Westringia smoky. Of course. Westringias we're using for hedging as well. And actually, I'm actually alternating Westringias in with Eremophilus. Like put, say, I've tried one and one, but I think it's actually better put two or three Westringias to every three Eremophilus. So you need a few more Westringias than you need Eremophilus because they're not quite as dominant. All right. Now, Westringias, that's a, uh, well, versions of them, native wis- uh, rosemaries. Eremacolas, uh, native rosemary, yeah, Westringias. Yeah, okay. There's about six of them from about knee high up to about a metre, a metre and a half. Okay, so it's native. What's the 
its value in terms of uh, bringing back wildlife? Uh, uh, when does it flower? What kind of flower does it have? And what does it bring back? The Westringias or the Eremophilus yeah, or both? Uh, oh no, well, they start with the Westringias. Uh, <laughs> there's sort of a mo, mo flowers and um, or to white flowers and um, be pollinated. Well, pollinated by bees and or native butterflies. bees, butterflies. And uh, all kind of flies as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so mostly, I think, for as pollinators. Yeah, yeah very for, good. For pollinators. But also, I was going to say, um, there's a, another beautiful hedge plant, and that's your um, Dodonia microzyga. Oh, now, that was bush. discovered by, I think, Pam at the Bush Gardens and... Uh, um, others at the Bush Gardens about five years ago, just north of Nuriutpur at St Kitts, they discovered this plant called Dodonia microzyga. Microzyga. And it's a tiny little sticky hot bush. It's a tiny little Dodonia and it's local to north, northern Barossa and it forms a box hedge to about knee height. And it would be good for areas around here, heavier soils. Yes, it grows in the... Uh, yeah. It'll probably grow in a mixture of soils, but okay. yeah, yeah, okay. mixture of soils. Would that help Mark in Burnside or not quite that uh, far? Not, well, if you want <laughs> to get them from Barossa Bush Gardens, because I don't think anywhere else in South Australia has got them at the <laughs> You've moment. you them. But we have, you know, that's the beauty of having a local regional native flora centre, such as the Bush Gardens, where you're honouring the local sense of plants in, in and it's just been wonderful. So people wanted to write that down again. It was Dodonera. Dodonera, Dodonera, A-E-A on the end with uh, microzyga, but you'd have to microzyga. contact the bush gardens to get them, I think, until, That's right. until they know. become more we'll widely known. Put in a plug for you and uh, yeah. let's see if we can't sort of get lots of people turning up. Now, we've got a couple more calls to get for Chris Hall, our native expert. Colette from Clearview, good morning to you. Good morning, team. I'm just ringing to help with the um, natives in a normal garden. I'm in my vegetable garden out front, which is my front of house garden, and I've got two banksias. My street tree is a, is a myrtle. I've got a calistemon. I've got four finger limes, all my tomatoes, my raspberries and all the rest of it. So just in this spot, I have three different types of native bees. This is my praying mantis breeding area. Um, I've got multiple types of hoverflies. And then at the back, I've got ornamentals, grasses, butterfly grasses in amongst all my bulbs and flowers. And then in the chookyard is my orchard with 28 fruit trees where all the praying mantis go to grow up with the microbats and the, all the rest of so it. You can actually plant your natives in with your ornamentals and you'll get everything. Okay, so it's a comment rather than a question. It is indeed a comment. Yeah, and okay, it was a lovely comment. I'm not deriding that one, but yeah. No, thank you for that. Thanks, I, Colin. I love that. I love, I love that. I love that. I think the idea of putting in your local native plants, your herbaceous understory, under other big plants, whether they're native or exotic, I think is a wonderful way of heading in the right direction towards discovering a, a truly South Australian garden. So let's pursue that thought. There are a lot of people would like to have more Australian plants in their garden, but they're not too sure which ones they want and where to put them. So can we have an example of where we, you, we, you'd start? You've got a typical suburban garden, uh, front garden, back garden, a bit of a verge out the front. Uh, where would you start? Mm, I'd, I'll, just, I'll just go back one step, John, um, before we go into the structure, which we'll go into about the, the heights. Um, but I'd go for a local native species list. So I'd badger your local uh, natural resource centre mm -hmm. or your local council library or your local council. I know your natural resource centres, of which I think we have eight across the metropolitan area, including the Bush Gardens, which is one of them. Absolutely. Um, um, uh, I'd badger them for the, the local native species list. A good local nursery will have them as well. But that make that your Bible. Make your local species list your Bible. So get your local species list, and then it tells you, you know, what you can grow on the sand, what you can grow on the clay, the herbaceous pretties, the the, the reeds, the sedges, the grasses. Get that first. So that's the 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 local land care office. Is that correct? a land care office or your natural resource centre? Yes. Yeah, of, of which there's eight yeah. across the All region. Right. But if you just go land care um, and find out the offices, there's one at Mount Barker, which is the yeah. head of the uh, yeah. Well, they'll hope. 
they'll hopefully have them for yes. sure. Otherwise, your council. So I know some councils will will have them as well. Okay, so there's so the then, challenge. Put it together. Where do we start? So then, well, I think you've got to look at some structural diversity. Um, I've got about ten tips here for things for improving your wildlife. But in terms of structure, you've got your overstory with your gums or your major trees, your, your highest trees. Then you've got your higher shrubs, your medium shrubs, your low shrubs, and then your cottage garden pretties and your what I call your, your ankle biters down to your ground covers and then your climate. So you have got to have some of all of those. So you've got a structure high up there for the birds to land on? Yes. And the middle ones for the insects to land on? Yes. And the ground covers for what? A little... The ground covers for um, lots of lizards, for instance, canedia, you're running postmen and things like that, um, and your nodding salt bushes and things like that for the birds and the like. white plumed honey eaters will gorge themselves on ruby salt bush. They just make the, make us a, a fool of themselves gorging themselves on <laughs> ruby salt bush uh, seeds in March. Um, so uh, one other thing I think is really important, a conversation I think we need to have in Adelaide is about um, about the height of the tree in the overstory because it, we haven't, with our smaller building envelopes, we haven't got the space for large gums. So I'm, I'm looking myself at, um, I've got mallies in my front garden, I've got the local rich-fruited mallee uh, where you've got a more open canopy, uh, you're still attracting the birds, you still get purchased for birds. Oops. Per purchase for birds, but you don't have the problems associated with the very large gums associated close to houses. So I think looking at a smaller gum, so look at Dean Nicole's book on smaller eucalypts. Yes. Um, look at um, Phil Baggist and Linda Tout-Smith's book about books, uh, plants of the Adelaide Plains. They've got the eucalyptus socialis, the dumosas in there, the, the ridge-fruited mallees, the incrustatas that will grow on sand. They've been really successful and and they won't block your solar panels, you know? So thinking about smaller gums on smaller trees. And that is a very good suggestion, and I've already made a note from it from discussions with you this week to talk, and we'll have a, a, a full program on small gum trees for suitable for suburban gardens. But let's come back to putting it together. You've got plants, oh. and you've got to put it somewhere, and probably small gardens, people are... It's, it's full already. Where do you put it? And to me, probably the most logical place is out the front. Ah, the road verge. You're 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 nudging towards a road verge, John. I can tell he's got he's got a wicked he's got a wicked grin he on his face. He's got That's a glint right. in his eye. Yeah, he has. Yeah, um, these crummy old verges out the front. I, I mean, know. some people have well, horns, but the most it's either weeds or else it's gravel, and yeah. uh, uh, just looks well, disgusting. Well, we're on the same team here, John. I think there's so many lovely road verges emerging in Adelaide streets now, and some of them are really wild. I really like the um, informality of some of them and the fact that people are throwing in 10, 12 species into them. So I love this and I'm thinking um, herbaceous understory. So get your local species list, put in the, um, the little, um, little shrubs, the little things, the inardias that grow at the base of a tree, the nodding saltbush that grows at the base of the tree, the corias, the smaller ones. Put in your arthropodiums, put in your mini daisies, put in your little your little cottage garden pretties, you know, your chrysocephalums and your canedias and your gardenias and your things like that. And some of the grasses would be beautiful, wouldn't they? And the grasses. Yes. My favourite is um, lemon-scented grass, Simpapogon which is planted in Wattle Street, Fullerton, down in the rain gardens there in the street. Um, and it's wild to the Flinders Ranges creek beds, but it's also local to here. It's local to the Barossa, so uh, lemon-scented grass. It's, a, it's what the Aborigines used to put into the gut of the kangaroo, and that was their spice. How about that? For the... Um, for their cooking. Okay, yeah. so there's the verge out the front, and it's pretty crummy. It's all very, very hard, uh, and I... My understanding is the councils are now switching on and if you ring up the council and say, listen, I want to have a garden, a native garden in my verge, can you help? And they'll actually take away the crummy soil and put back some reasonable soil. Is yes, yes um, you do have to get permission from the council. I got permission from Barossa Council for my road verge. And um, that's right, you may have to put uh, get rid of a little bit of the... Uh, the dolomite and uh, put some better soil in as, as a starting point but uh, um, 
Rogue Verges also have this wonderful, wonderful effect, John. I know you're on side with this in terms of urban heat island effect. With the cooling effect of the tree canopy, you put some more plants underneath it. You're only going to enhance that cooling effect um, in terms of your urban heat islands. And imagine what a street could look like with every house in the street mm. had a road verge of, of made of natural lawn or, or natural um, species, local species. Go Chris, wild in uh, the suburbs. Yes, ideas have legs, Chris. Let's yes. hope that one has got lots of legs. Yes. Yes, we've got another caller for you. Probably we'll make it our last with Chris Hall, our guest. Lance is in Port Augusta. Lance, you've got a native hibiscus question. Yes, I do. <coughs> I'd say one I bought from uh, Wadlada or the Aradland Botanic Garden, and it's about eight months old, and I need to know when to prune it. It's absolutely loaded with flowers at the moment. Sorry, I missed the hibiscus. Hibiscus. Oh, right. Well, again, um, <laughs> the the rule is you prune it after flowering, but it never stops flowering. So when do you prune it? Yeah, I exactly. think you prune it to shape, uh, Ian. Um, let, just give it its head and and allow it to grow to a nice shape, and then you say, right, that's the size I want. And at that stage, um, let's say you say you want it at, at 1.5 meters. You don't chop it at 1. 1.5 metres, you chop it at 1.3 metres because it's going to grow again and that new growth will go back to 1.5. So you just be in charge, you say I, I'm in charge here, I want you to grow this size and whatever size that you have, it'll put on new growth and the flowers will come from the new growth and away you go. And it's growing under a jacaranda tree, Gum? A jacaranda? Mm, it's growing under a jacaranda and there's a native rose along with it. <laughs> right, so what's the problem? I don't have a problem. I, I just want to know what to do with the with the hibiscus. The native rose will take care of itself. Well, you're the boss, apparently, Lance. Yeah, you get no, to decide. I, as I say, you know, the, the two of them will grow quite well. Uh, the jacarandas are, from my point of view, a, a messy kind of a plant, but uh, some people love them, so grow them. But in, in terms of the two, they, they're compatible, they grow fairly well, so long as there's reasonable light getting to your native hibiscus, you'll be happy. You just chop it back when you feel it needs it. Uh, the best times are, after, you, you'll find that it'll, the flowers will come in a flush or, or in waves, and once you've had a bit of a wave, there's still some flowers there, but chop it back then and probably six months later you can do uh, repeat the operation. Thanks, John. Did you Thanks, want to Lance. comment on that? Chris? No, I just wondered if I can make a final comment about um, where people can access resources. Oh. Is that okay? Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, that was yeah. my next question. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the Green Adelaide website is, is full of resources. Green uh, Adelaide, Green Adelaide website. website. If you yes. Google that, they've got particularly ones on butterfly-friendly gardens. Um, there's an Adelaide Gardens planting guide, a coastal gardens planting guide, gardening for native bees. Oh, no, that's at the Burnside Council website. So if you go to the Burnside Council website, there's a 10 tips for gardening with native bees, which is really good, from Katja Hugendorn, whom I know you've had on recently. Yes. Um, and then also, if you've got other questions specifically, um, don't be afraid to contact the, the Greening, Green Adelaide staff via their website. There's contact details via their website. There's 10 or 12 staff from Green Adelaide who will uh, get in touch with you if you've got specific questions about land, water, biodiversity, plants, animals. There's information there. It's yeah. a matter of accessing it. And certainly, I think Green Adelaide are doing a tremendous job in, in bringing it all together. There's different, so many different uh, corridors you can go down. And uh, mm. there's an umbrella mm. coming over the whole system. Mm. And I think Green Adelaide is a good starting point. Mm. So you are not alone. You've got places like Barossa Bush Gardens and Green Adelaide and um, yes. natural resource centres. Absolutely. So if you're going for a tour and you're going for a winery tour, uh, just divert a little and pop into the uh, Barossa. Bush Gardens. Is in Uriutpa. Yep. yep, wonderful. And I have to say, Chris, I feel like we've lived with our land here. Well, we've got, of course, First Nations people have lived with it for many millennia, tens of thousands of years. Since civilization, we've cleared so much. And I think we're only now understanding just how symbiotic all the relationships are between trees, fungi. You started by talking about carbon going back in just from cutting a particular grass and uh, the complexity that we are only now just grasping of these incredible ecosystems. Mm. 
and how we can make a difference at the local level, even though we may feel so powerless at the global level with all that's happening around us. Um, at the local level, that's where you are in charge. You have a choice in your garden. You can help make that little patch of land more sustainable, more friendly for birds, bugs and critters. And, and that's our little paradise, isn't it? Think global, act local. Great four words to keep in mind. Chris Hall, thank you very much for your contribution. And I'll be thinking, when is Chris coming back again? <laughs> and I look forward to that, Chris. But thank you for your concept uh, at the moment, and particularly the, the concept of connecting the people, the plants and the wildlife. And if we connect it back, we restore what we've lost. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris Hall, practical native plant garden designer, founding member of the Barossa Bush Garden, author of Wild Barossa. We'll get back into your general talkback gardening calls very shortly. And we're going to announce the winners of the 2022 Talkback Gardening Spring Rose Photographic Competition. Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Lakes broadcasting as part of the Park Run community. Can't stop Chris and John talking. They are off and away on native plants. But we'll have to bring John Lamb back now because we've got some of your general talkback gardening questions. If you'd like to come down and see us, we're on the corner of Main Street and Mawson Lakes Boulevard. Come and play the quiz live. Now, Peter, you are from Mawson Lakes. Welcome yes. to us. Welcome here. Have you just done the Park Run yourself? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Walk. <laughs> oh, park walk. That's yep. what we like to see. Now, you've brought something in yeah, for yeah. John to have a look at. Now, um, we're just handing across now. Peter has got, I'm assuming, a weed from your garden. Yes, yeah, just in the front. Cooch uh, grass, and it's got this, um, it's a very small leaf uh, clover type uh, weed that seems to be, uh, it's glyphosate resistant, which uh, I have tried one uh, spray, which seems to knock it out, but it comes back again. And the, the spray I've used is a bit nasty. And, um, I'm just wondering if there's any safe, if it, if it were, uh, identify it. does have a, a little yellow fly, yeah. flower that comes out with it. Uh, if there's any sort of organic type alternatives to use or any safer options well, for controlling it? Well, the problem is you get rid of it and it comes away again. And the reason it comes away again is you can see its capacity for producing seeds. Yeah. And every time it flowers, it'll set seed, yeah. and you'll get hundreds of new seeds coming out. And I don't believe that there is an organic fertiliser, and simply because uh, either you've got to have a, a, a chemical which is specific to that particular weed and it'll knock off the weed and not knock off the rest of the grass yeah. uh, or else you need something that's systemic and uh, I wouldn't be using a systemic weed aside on your lawn simply because it'll knock your lawn off as well. So yeah. it comes down to the fact that I think if you, even though you mightn't like them, there are chemicals there and MCPA is the basic uh, of it and you'll find there are, they mix it with different things and there's a chemical called bromoxanol, bromoxanol. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the reason I mention that one is because this plant goes sideways and some weedicides go up and down yeah. and bromoxanol goes sideways. So yeah. if you use bromoxanol mixed up with MCPA okay. and when you see it, and the smaller the plants are, the yep. more effective the chemical will be. Okay. Once you've got a great big plant, it's much better to sort of just cut the root off and let new ones come up. And when the new ones come up, yep. spray them. And if you do that on a regular basis, okay. you gradually reduce the weed seed bank. Yep. And that's your problem, yes. is the weeds that you've got in the in the bank. Existing, so yeah. you've got to run the bank dry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Terrific. Okay. Oh, okay. Thanks very much. That's great. Thanks Thank very you. much for asking the question. Grab yourself a magazine there, please. Thank you. Now, Margaret from Craigburn Farm is on the line. Margaret, um, you've morning. got a good morning to you. You've got a question about roses. Perfect weekend to be asking. Yes. Um, I've got a problem with six beautiful roses that came from Trelaws. So they're a good summer romance. And there's an increasing shade problem, a possum. And birds eating the buds when they come out. So last week, I or two weeks ago, I painted the tops of the roses with olive oil and cayenne pepper, and suddenly I've got some flowers. But when the flowers burst, they all look a bit, they don't come out evenly. They look like someone scrunched them. The, 
they look distorted until they get going. And I, the bushes look healthy. I can't work out what I'm doing wrong, or is it the shade? No, I think you'll find that there's something. You say that it's the petals, where the petals come out and they've got little sort of marks on them or streaks in them. No marks, just instead of opening evenly, they kind of come look out. like they're struggling to come out. I see, right. Um, you, you said that you used uh, an oil spray, did you? I made my own olive oil and cayenne pepper to paint <laughs> on the bud so that the possums, hopefully the possums and the birds might leave yeah. them alone for a while. Yeah. Okay, well that's, uh, that's you know, that you can, if you use it often enough you can sort of keep the possums away. Um, but I think what you've got is a, a brew that's maybe a little bit too strong. You'll find that when the buds are just forming and just starting to sort of grow a little bit, um, if the chemical you're spraying round about that stage, the chemical gets in, and they only need a small amount to cause a distortion, and so uh, the, the, it will either uh, slow some buds that have been sprayed down, and they'll open up slow, more slowly than others, and you might find also that some of the buds you get distortion as well. So I think it's probably the chemical or the spray you're using, and if you can, maybe just reduce the uh, strength of what you're using, or else um, you could buy a nice... <laughs> uh, your oil sprays, I think, are very, very effective. Uh, pest oil or um, eco oil. Or Does that keep the possums and the birds off? Oh, uh, well... What I'd suggest is you buy yourself, which is what I'd do, is buy a little bottle of garlic, crushed garlic. Ah, it's already yes. crushed, it's already... And you mix it up with water um, and uh, you know, a dessert spoon in, in say, two litres of water, um, mix it all up and then strain it and then use that as a spray. Possums ah. don't like garlic. They get it oh, onto, their port, onto their fur, they lick it, and uh, if you use it often enough, so <laughs> you, know, you might have to do it every week until they get used to the fact that your, your roses just don't taste very nice. <laughs> Good luck, <laughs> Margaret. Thanks very Thank much you. for calling in. Nice to hear from you. Live hit down here at Mawson Lakes on a beautiful Saturday is Val uh, Valda from Salisbury. Now, yes. you've got a lemon tree crop. What's going wrong with it? We get three crops off of it, but usually one of them, yeah, when we cut the fruit open, it's brown inside and it's dry. And my sister has the same problem. She says she gets three crops and one crop out of the three, normally when you cut and open, they're dry and brown inside. Right, and is it the one that uh, sort of matures during autumn that ends up dry? So the, one, the ones you're picking in, in winter probably are looking all dry? Yes, yeah. Yeah, OK. I think it's stress. I think um, if it produces three lots of lemons, that's pretty good. But to produce that, every lemon has got juice inside, and that means where's the water? And I suspect that uh, during your summer period, maybe it's not getting enough water. Okay. Could that be the problem? That could be, yeah. Yeah. Um, citrus have got citrus uh, uh, sur surface roots. They up near, you know, in the top 20 centimetres, most of the roots are there. Yeah. And you'll find that on uh, dry, particularly hot weather, uh, the root system just dries out and you only need a little bit of drying out and uh, there's just not enough moisture in the system right. and so the tree says we, we need a drink. There's a bit of surplus moisture in that lemon there, we'll suck it back out of the lemon. Well, it doesn't really happen that way, it just yeah. means that instead of putting the water into the lemon, there's not enough water to go around so yeah. some of the lemons don't get enough water and so you okay. end up with brown. It could also be an insect, but I don't want yeah. to go down that road. I no. think it's probably just mm. stress. Because we've got an orange tree next to it, it's only in a small area, and that seems to go very well. And uh, yeah. Does it have three crops, though? No, no that's only right. one. Yeah, yeah. And that's <laughs> right. And, and it's when... Uh, when uh, Deb's absolutely right. It depends on when it's growing, when the fruit's growing, okay. and, and needs its, its moisture fix. Yeah. Um, so making sure that your trees are moist uh, and mulched, 
and if you water them, I think, on a regular basis during warm weather, that problem should disappear. Okay. It could be you've got too many lemons left on your tree. No, no, I've taken off. I've, <laughs> I've just taken all the right ones off, and now I've got the next fruit. That, okay, that's Enjoy. the smart yeah. thing to yeah. do. Yeah. No, good on you, Val. Thanks, Val. Yeah. Grab yourself a magazine. Thanks and for I'll, joining I'll us. And I go with natives too. I grow them on the verge of this council, and my mother was in the scap in Murray Bridge years ago when she was alive, and she used to grow a lot of natives around Murray Bridge in the homing areas and that. Fantastic. So it's in the and blood. And I believe in it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Citrus more. are one of those plants that I reckon are good because of the amount of insects yeah. they attract. The number of little diverse type of insects yeah. is, is brilliant. Yeah, John, we have to move along okay. because we haven't oh. yet, thanks Valda, announced the winners of the 2022 Talkback Gardening Spring Rose Photographic Competition. Now, the brief, of course, was for home gardeners to send us a photo of your favourite plant, your best bud, your best rose, your best bush. Tell us a little bit about it and why you love it. Now, if I could give a prize for every person that sent in a beautiful rose, John, I'd have to get... Over 100 rose <laughs> prizes. Uh, 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 yes, almost 150 <laughs> prizes, in fact. And, and look, some of the stories accompanying them were also amazing. Some of them were very clever, some of them were very funny, and some of them were very moving. So thank you to everybody that entered, and thank you for sending your gorgeous rose photographs in. If it was about the quality of the rose you'd all get a prize. But it's the quality of the photograph, so we were pretty strict on it. We only have one first prize of the beautiful book, The Heritage Garden, kindly donated by great South Australian rosarians Kay and Walter Duncan, and an ABC um, Gardening Australia um, bit of a, a shopping bag also will go to the winner. And the second, third and fourth prizes are an item of ABC Gardening Australia merchandise, some back issues of ABC Gardening Australia and ABC Organic Gardener magazines. But I love so many, I've made five runners-up packs. <laughs> That's <back>. typical, Deb. <laughs> I, I can never get it down. Uh, I feel so ruthless. You're too kind heart. Oh, to the, of, of ABC Gardening Australia and ABC Organic Gardener magazines. So firstly, our runners-up, the prize pack winners, uh, Roma of Highbury, um, just a beautiful rose. Ron Hassan of Colonel Light Gardens, a four-year-eyes-only floribunda bush, absolutely beautiful. Bernice Virgo from O'Halloran Hill for her first bunch of the season in a vase, looking absolutely yeah, glorious. Lovely, lovely. Um, Glenn Bernhardt of Port Pirie with his per perfume passion rose, which was gorgeous. And Marilyn of Glenelg's Dave and Austin rose, Abraham uh, Darby. Congratulations to all of those um, prize pack winners. Fourth prize, the Mr Lincoln, don't I love it, goes to Diane Ellis at Angerston. And that was, um, she calls it Dad's Rose because her mum arranged a beautiful wreath of them on her dad's coffin. So really just a, a beautiful reminder of Dad. Third prize, Mother's Love, goes to Antonio de Guzman from Maslin Beach. Um, it's a hybrid tea rose, just a beautiful, gentle picture of a pale pink rose. And very, very lovely. Second prize is the Remember Me by Vincent Housecroft of Flagstaff Hill. A very dramatic picture of a beautiful orange, um, well, as Vincent says, I love the vibrant orange colours of the petal, which glow beautifully in the sunlight. But... Our grand prize winner of the beautiful uh -huh. book, uh -huh. The Heritage Garden, kindly donated by our wonderful South Australian Rosarians, Kay and Walter Duncan, is drumroll, first prize. I think it's a double delight, goes to Alison Jones of Netherby. Alison, congratulations. Yes, it just <laughs> captured, you, I think, the mood, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now, is it a double delight that you sent in? Well, I, I, it, the, the rose came from a, a garden that was to be demolished and to some, a member of the family brought me one of these roses and I said, well, it's too good to have that thrown out. So I didn't really know, but I have seen a photograph and it looks like that. That yes, um, one, like but it's quite delight. a while ago, so it was really just guesswork. But well, so Alison, it was just it. it was bright, it was happy, and it just looked like South Australian roses in spring to me. It just as soon as I looked at it, it said that. So congratulations to you. Um, we've got all of your details. Congratulations to Alison and to all of our winners, and thank you so much for sharing your beautiful roses with us here uh, at ABC Radio Adelaide. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 
and congratulations to our Gardening Australia magazine winners, uh, Neville from Port Lincoln and Gail from Salisbury Heights. Time for one last question. Robin is in Colonel Light Gardens with my favourite uh, vegetable just about, asparagus. Hi, Robin. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, John. Thanks for squeezing me in. Um, yeah, John, I've got a um, dedicated asparagus bed that's been in uh, growing for about three or four years. And I've heard you say that you should leave the ferns growing, especially on younger asparagus crowns. But I'm just wondering, if, is there any advantage to leaving the ferns growing tall on older crowns or can I cut them off or is it best to leave them? Uh, the, the more ferns you're going to have, the more asparagus shoots you'll have in the following year so that uh, I would be uh, but yeah the, in autumn probably uh, as we move into winter is the time to cut them back and you cut them all back whether they're they've browned off or not uh, everything cut it right back down to ground level and then you start all over again in springtime you get your ferns uh, your spears uh, harvest what you need and then l make sure you leave plenty and they turn into the ferns grow during the growing season and they'll brown off uh, probably towards the end of autumn and that's the cycle for asparagus. Lovely, so they continue to improve and, and add to the, the pr productivity of the crown over the years. The best thing you can do is buy yourself a bag of cow manure. Cow manure is just uh, soft and gentle and you can put the whole bag on your bag. You can't overdo cow manure, but give it a mulching with cow manure and then every time you water it, some of the nutrients will get into the topsoil and uh, that's all the asparagus needs. It's got a very deep root system and uh, when you're watering, just make sure when you do water it, you really give it a good soaking and then let the topsoil dry out before you water again. Thanks for the Fantastic. call, Robin. Thank you. Hope it goes well. Enjoy that delicious asparagus. I do love it. John, we've had a beautiful day today, but the rain's setting in tomorrow and it's going to be with us for the whole week. Where does that leave us with regard to citrus gall wasp? Citrus gall wasp. Kale and clay is the spray which will stop the wasp from reinfesting your trees. But you spray with kale and clay and it needs probably at least a minimum of four hours of dryness. If you've got four hours of dryness, ideally six hours, then it, it, it sticks there and it'll stay there through a showery weather, but rainy weather, uh, it's a little bit different. If you've got a heavy infestation, I'd say put on a spray today if you possibly can, and uh, okay, it'll get a lot of it will get washed off, so uh, you need to put on two sprays. So if, you're putting, if you've got a heavy infestation, spray today if you possibly can, and then next weekend will be the beginning of probably at least a week or maybe longer of dry warm weather so uh, if you've only got a few infestations wait until next weekend to spray put your spray on then uh, the wasp will be emerging probably tomorrow they'll reach a peak on the 14th of November and it'll all be over they'll all be gone by the end of November so I'd say uh, spray today if you possibly can if you've got a bad problem with citrus gall wasp Wonderful. Well, it's been great being live here at Mawson Lakes. John Lamb, thank you so much for taking us to talk about gardening here this morning. <laughs> it certainly is a lovely, uh, a lovely place to be. I can smell lovely food at the moment. People are drinking coffee. So I'll say goodbye and good gardening. <laughs>